Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Biotech Project. Super excited to be here with you again. Uh, we I can't even keep track of what episode we're up to at this point, but uh, we're really excited at uh, the way things have been going. Uh, we have a great guest joining us today, which John will tell you about in a second here. Uh, but before we kick in, we want to remind everybody to uh, help us keep the project going by subscribing uh, on our website, thebiotechproject.com. Uh, whatever your favorite podcast network is, uh, we are available on all of them, Apple, uh, Google, uh, even your uh, Alexa can can play the podcast if, uh, if that's the way you like to listen. And of course, YouTube, uh, all of them are at The Biotech Project. Um, so, uh, John, what do we got joining us today? Yeah, great. Thanks, Scott. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Biotech Project. I'm super happy today to be uh, introducing you all to Megan Grosso. Um, Megan also, as we've had other guests from the medical affairs world, joins us uh, from a long background in medical affairs uh, and is currently working uh, leading global medical teams. So um, something new for us today and really excited to speak to Megan. So without any further ado, let's do this. <laughs> You want to break into and navigate your career in the pharma and biotech industry. We know how to teach you. This is the Biotech Project. From sales to medical affairs and everything in between, we're talking about it. No matter how you got here, from here to your next role is up to you, and we're here to help. You'll hear from guests in every role, from CEO to sales, recruiters to hiring managers, the Biotech Project. Here are your hosts, Scott Resnick and Dr. John Walsh. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk with you guys. Yeah, we're very excited to have you today, Megan. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I started to say, as we came into the episode, Megan, um, we've spoken of uh, some other folks who've been in the medical affairs world like we have, uh, but we haven't had the chance really to talk to somebody um, like yourself uh, who works in field medical predominantly. Um, however, your career has been varied uh, and I think it's going to be super exciting to learn a little bit about you. So maybe I'll just turn it over to you and you can tell us a little bit about you and your background and your journey through medical affairs. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, happy to. So I certainly haven't had uh, a conventional career trajectory. Um, I actually have my doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, then I went back and I um, went to physician assistant school. And right out of um, receiving my um, PA degree, I actually went into academia and I spent about a decade in academia. Um, also in somewhat of an unconventional role, I actually split my time. 50% of my time was spent um, in the clinical setting. And then the other 50% was actually um, in clinical research. Uh, so I was really, really fortunate to work um, where I was located um, with a world-renowned researcher in neurodegenerative disease, specifically um, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, so through my decade um, working in academia, had some opportunities to work as a consultant um, for organizations, um, companies that were looking to move molecules 
um, through their translational research. Um, so I first got acquainted with medical affairs specifically um, through advisory board participations where I was serving as an advisor and then also through consulting because of the research projects that we were, um, that we were working on. Um, so after about a decade, I decided um, there's no way people get paid to do this job called a medical science liaison. How cool. <laughs> and I thought my interest in research and kind of continuing to help serve um, people living with uh, debilitating diseases could also be best served through the lens of medical affairs. So I made my first jump over to industry. Um, it's funny. People say, oh, you went to the dark side from <laughs> academia. True. Um, and then I actually worked as an MSL, um, kind of quickly moving uh, to a senior MSL role. Um, after a couple years, I loved it. Uh, in the field, talking science, really collaborating and kind of pushing the needle forward um, in neurology. Uh, and then I kind of had the opportunity with um, some really supportive leadership. Um, I moved into a scientific director position, which remained field-based. I actually wanted to stay field-based and in the field, having the discussions where I oversaw data generation for North America. Um, and then pivoted back to um, actually a leadership position for field medical. Um, so each of those roles were a um, couple years um, plus in duration. I had the opportunity to work through um, launches, uh, commercial, the commercialization process. Uh, and now currently I hold a um, head of a global um, role where I'm overseeing the United States um, from field medical, but also really harmonizing and standardizing what um, field medical can look like and should look like from an organizational perspective um, when considering other key regions outside of just North America. So, Awesome. That's great. I mean, one of the entryways that a lot of people in science uh, or whether it be academia, whether it be in, in medicine is to come into the industry on the MSL or medical science liaison side. Uh, so, It'd be really interesting to hear. And in fact, we got a question recently from one listener who is is in a nursing background and is very interested about joining industry. So I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are about moving from the clinical or academic world into an MSL role. And maybe you could tell us a bit about what is an MSL, how how do what do they do every day? How's that all work? Yeah, yeah. So um so a couple different things to think through um with that question. I think um the industry as a whole has really there's sort of been a paradigm shift over the last kind of decade plus. So the MSL kind of role has been around since what? It was like the late 60s, I think, when it was up down, it's actually Pfizer now, kind of first identified, hey, we really need scientific experts in the field building these relationships with um, our key healthcare providers. Um, so that's sort of the evolution. And then you have kind of fast forward several decades later, pharma code gets implemented. You have regulatory governing bodies that are really starting to dictate how our interactions should look with our external stakeholders, you know, Office of Inspector General and things like that. And that's where you've seen the continued growth exponentially, basically, in field medical affairs. Um, 
And there's, there's different terminologies, different companies have kind of used different terms for um, what is essentially the, the very um, typical MSL position. So you'll see like clinical liaisons, medical, regional medical managers, um, but really all in all, the, the key objectives are to build and cultivate those strategic peer-to-peer relationships with our external stakeholders. Being that scientific expert, um, providing that unbiased, fair, balanced um, information so that ultimately healthcare providers can make informed, well-educated decisions when they're treating people living with disease, right? Um, from For your question, particular to a nurse who's interested in entering, I think with the evolution that's happened, um, we've seen diversity in field medical teams specifically. Um, even several years ago, it was very common to have just pharmacists or just basic scientists as part of your field team. That's not the case anymore. We're extremely diverse. People in organizations, leadership companies are recognizing the value that a multitude of different skill sets provide. Um, So one of them is absolutely experience and deep experience with direct patient care. Um, What resonates well with our external experts is familiarity, right? And that's one opportunity to really build those peer-to-peer. So I I have seen, you know, very commonly that terminal degree is what is sort of like a benchmark for um, a medical science liaison. It's certainly not always the case to have that terminal degree, but it is very standard. And part of it is necessary in order to help establish and cultivate truly that what is expected, that peer-to-peer with our healthcare providers. Um, but that, di- that diverse um, background has been integral to really key success um, for, for field medical specifically. Yeah, I know, um, you know, one of the things we've talked about with some other guests, and and it was actually something that I experienced at a previous company was having a background as a medic, um, but not having that, you know, that, that deep science degree, you know, having a a business and psychology degree, but I was actually approached, was it something I was interested in? And, you know, my, my concern at the time, while I had tremendous interest in, in the science, I, I love the science. I'm, I'm the rep that's out there understanding clinical trials, knowing what's coming, not just my own world, but the world around me, you know, what, what's what's going on in the disease state, that, that type of thing. So it was really uh, an exciting, you know, conversation. But then I started to think, well, you know, w- what's the ceiling look like? Somebody who doesn't have that PhD or that PharmD, you know, is there a ceiling? And there certainly was at the time. But, you know, maybe that's something that's going to um, change uh, down the road as people move into that. Um, my, my question for you is there's been this kind of paradigm shift that was uh, expedited by COVID, obviously, where you uh, you know had a lot of things change. Um, what's going on in field medical affairs these days that, you know, has really kind of, what's the biggest changes that you're seeing and, and what are the biggest opportunities for people, um, you know, moving forward? 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. I think um, uh, I think we've all sort of felt um, the impact of COVID, right, and a multitude of different levels. I think field medical specifically, um, what has been actually really nice is a large portion of what is sort of your planning throughout your week and throughout your month has historically included travel, right? Um, And, you know, even in, you know, I live in New York, so snow is like, it's here on Mother's Day sometimes. (laughs) So, um, travel disruptions are part of, are on par for the course, right? I think what's been really nice is um, that sort of removed that layer of complexity when you're thinking on like a day-to-day weekly basis for um, what, what your job looks like. Um, it's also what I've seen um, with COVID and moving to a virtual platform exclusively for our scientific engagements and our interactions is it's actually been somewhat refreshing in the sense that those interactions have been somewhat uninterrupted interactions um, where the pressure of having, you know, getting put as a healthcare provider, getting pulled in a multitude of different directions, even if you are trying to have a scientific engagement with somebody, um, is there. Um, so what, what I saw, um, and we're, we're sort of transitioning to this kind of hybrid model right now um, with people's um, appetite and where where we are just as a as a company or as a um, as a country in regards to COVID. But I've seen that that scheduled interaction time it has been like protected time. Um, so our level of interactions have actually been extremely valuable, very impactful. Um, so that's been, that's been actually one interesting takeaway. I think we're all sort of probably at a point, I don't think I would be, um, out on an Island on my own when I say we're probably all suffering virtual meeting fatigue. (laughs) Um, so so I do see moving forward probably a balance of a, I don't think we're going to move away from some percentage of virtual interaction. Um, I think there's benefits there, um, both from an organization, but also from a healthcare provider perspective. Um, so, I, so I do see moving forward having, having a somewhat of a hybrid model um, in, so in to- some capacity. Yeah. So to that point, when you're building out your teams today, Mm -hmm. um, maybe give me a few thoughts about what you're thinking in terms of how does that look? Are are you building it with the intent that in the future, everybody will be out in the field and we use a relatively traditional model? Or is this something where you're allocating people differently now because of the way we can work? Yeah. I, so I can tell you definitely the latter. Um, I also, what, what has become very, very obvious is that you have the luxury of being able, so to my earlier point, diverse teams, using um, a virtual type of model from an engagement planning perspective, you, you know, typically you have field medical as territory-based individuals, right? So they're sort of assigned to a specific territory. They have their 
um, regional um, external stakeholders that they're engaging and planning their engagements with. Well, that kind of comes off the table when you think through the lens of virtual interactions. You get the luxury of being able to lean and pull on your colleagues that perhaps have different skill sets or different expertise at a much deeper level that is going to be that much more valuable for your external stakeholder. So I think we've been able to build much more strategic engagement plans recognizing that um, that you can use this sort of hybrid. There's, I, there's always going to be value in face-to-face interactions. That's sort of where that natural, organic um, relationship building, I think, best comes from. But I think when you think of strategic engagement planning, um, to, to not include a, a virtual component to that um, is really a disservice, honestly, because um, I think it, it presents a, a huge amount of opportunity. And I, sure. I think, you know, some feedback I've heard from, you know, being on the commercial side is you, you, we're actually getting to talk to people we might not have been able to previously because they know that, um, you know, they can click a button and the meeting's over, right? They don't have to try and shoo you out of their office and people don't see you coming into their office. And, you know, it's just a lot of um, ease and, and, you know, kind of enforcement of what, what they want. They can, you know, really limit and, and whatnot. And, and um, it also gives flexibility because, you know, there's no commute time, there's no return time, there's, you know, you can do it on, on everybody's schedule. And I, I think that's really been, you know, um, something that's been helpful. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I've yeah. actually seen a little bit of deeper relationships forming. You know, you're seeing in the window of people's personal lives that you wouldn't yeah. not necessarily otherwise see, right? Um, it's, there's, there's, it opens a door of additional avenues to connect with the person that you're engaging with, you know, whether it's their dogs, their kids, there's a piece of art on their wall, you know, um, you would not maybe perhaps in other, in other situations be able to connect with. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, let me ask now, switching gears, uh, we've, we've had, um, like John said, some other, you know, medical folks on, uh, but having somebody leading a field medical team, obviously that's uh, that that's closest to my world on the commercial side, right? So, um, I've been through organizations where the there's like a, a concrete barrier between field medical and and the sales organization. I've been parts of organizations where they try and navigate and and have them work as one team and and you know figure out how to navigate that on on each individual call. Um, what are you seeing going on now? What's what's kind of the the your take on how medical and commercial are able to work together and you know limit some of these kind of restrictions by while staying obviously compliant in a, in this very you know difficult compliant area? Yeah, it, it's a question that certainly I'm asked really frequently. Um, so obviously, we're dictated by the framework of not only our legal and our compliance colleagues for your organization, but even from a government perspective, right? There's clear guidance on how those interactions should look externally and then interpreted internally too. I honestly, what I've seen and where I've seen the best success is a mutual understanding of just what I call 
pure professional courtesy, right? Nobody wants to be blindsided that, okay, I'm, I perhaps have this scheduled call with this key thought leader or healthcare provider, um, or, you, or you're in their office and you're told, hey, I just saw your colleague, you know, yesterday or two days ago and you weren't aware. Yep. Um, so I think there's, there's just that level of due diligence on following up with your colleagues that, hey, there's an opportunity to say where you're going to be, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything is non-compliant, right? Like you're not going to share the context of what that meeting was. Um, But I, I think it's just courteous to be alerting your colleagues. And I think especially as, um, field-facing teams continue to evolve. So at any given organization, you can have easily six to eight people who work for the same organization that are all trying to gather insights and engage with the same key opinion leader or thought leader. Um, So to not have sort of just a level of visibility on where and who um, is going to is going to be at these um, institutions or with these healthcare providers, um, I, I think is not setting anybody up for success. So, you know, one of the points that you raised too is insights, um, which is something I get asked a lot about, and I'm sure you do too. Um, I, I always like to think about the medical organization, the commercial organization too. Anybody who's out with customers is kind of this bi-directional flow of information, right? There's certain things that we bring out to people, whether it's our data, our science, whatever, um, or answering key questions that they want to know. But there's also things that they want to let us know about, um, whether it's something happening in the industry, something happening at their institution, an observation they have about our medicines, thoughts about our data, whatever it is. So, so maybe you could speak a little bit about the value of the field teams with regard to bringing those insights back to the company. What does good look like, right? Because we hear these things all the time. And if it sits on a call plan somewhere on, on my hard drive and it doesn't help the organization, well, big deal, right? So, yeah. so h- how do you make it work? Yeah, that, that's actually a great question. I think um, it gets to probably the root question, which is, how do you place value on a field medical team, (laughs) right? Like we are not tied to prescriptions. So that's an easy measurable um, indicator that somebody is, is delivering a message that they should be delivering for an organization. Well, we don't have that on the medical side, right? So one way that, you know, I have um, specifically implemented for um, success factors is insights, how they're garnered. Are they actionable? Are they just informative insights? The most successful insight is one that's going to actually drive strategic decision-making for an organization, whether that's identifying um, evidence generation gap, uh, a publication need, a resource need in the field, or, and including, you know, key marketing resources, market access um, information. 
anything that's really going to um, kind of filter back to where the organization has a strategic decision-making capacity is going is sort of the best indicator of um, or best practice for insights. Um, and, and to your point, John, it's very bi-directional. So I look at the field medical team as critical to that strategic decision-making for an organization. What is filtered from the field in is just, if not more important than what is filtered from the organization out to the external stakeholders, right? Um, so so we've historically used in sort of the last several years that um, I've been working in different capacities, medical affairs is really measuring a percent of success of the field medical team for indicators of success as what percentage is really driving strategic decision-making by their insight gathering. Um, so yeah, absolutely critical. And awesome. how, how has great. the uh, medical liaison role evolved over years? I mean, I remember when I first started in industry, the MSL was, was, talking about clinical research, they were enrolling sites into research, they were working with IRBs, they were, you know, doing all of that. And then you have these, you know, um, these contract organizations that have come along and, and have taken a lot of that on. And I've been in organizations where they've had none of that on their table. In fact, they're completely disconnected from it. So, yeah. you know, what do you see the evolution there? And, and then how do you manage that when, you know, you're responsible for getting feedback from a key opinion leader? And then if, if you're not handling any of the, you know, the research side of things with them, you know, how, how does that disconnect work where, I mean, what's the challenge there with, you know, where they might come to you because they see you as a representative of the organization, but you really can't help there. How, how do you navigate that? Yeah, as far as clinical trials specifically, yeah, or like, yeah. Our, yeah. So um, I think, you, I, and I think this is variable across organizations and perhaps even therapeutic areas. So I do think um, there has been a need to have really designated clinical research associates that are tied to the organization to help drive. Um, specifics in regards to that trial that a company may be sponsoring um, at the site level. I think what is um, valuable where field medical comes in is they remain that scientific expert for that site. So if there are any questions in regards to um, uh, operation of the trial, contracting, different things from that perspective, that's always going to be your clinical um, operations um, team members. But if there's questions in regards to the protocol and things that are particular through that actual study or that protocol, that's really leveraging your, your um, field medical or your medical affairs partners. So I think the best organizations recognize both of those um, both of those uh, colleagues and how they sort of execute at the site level um, is where leadership is going to be critical. Um, whether it's sort of putting forth routine touch points. For, you know, like, hey, maybe it's just a five-minute check-in for this month. How are things going? How can we support you? 
is recruitment um, falling behind? What you know, are there questions on sort of um, uh, uh, specifics in regards to the protocol or the landscape that your medical affairs partners are best positioned to answer? Um, so, so there are strategies to really help um, ensure that the partnership is as robust and as collaborative as it can be. Um, so I, I have seen build out of both um, specifically of, uh, of those teams um, in, in the best practice of, in my experience has been that close collaborative partnership um, because ultimately it's ensuring that the right people are enrolled in the right trials and, and stay enrolled in the trial in order to get those critical data points to inform, um, to inform an organization. Um, so, so in regards to, um, in regards to the clinical trial piece specifically, that that's kind of my experience and sort of what I've seen, um, what I've seen as far as best practices. So if, you know, as far as tough questions go, right, if you had to break out the crystal ball, um, where do you see things going in, in field medical affairs? Any, any thoughts about what people are suggesting the future could look like? Because part of the reason I always ask this question is we've thought of the biotech project as a place where people can help plan their career. So yeah. if I'm thinking about a career in field medical affairs, you know, next week, next year, you know, years from now, what are some things that I should be thinking about now to kind of skate where the puck is going as, as opposed to where it is right now? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I would say the most successful people have been able to find where value is not currently filled for a company, right? And I would absolutely encourage people, I say it kind of constantly, Think outside of the box. Just because a role or a position or a job doesn't exist doesn't mean that you can't be the catalyst that moves that forward. Field yeah. medical has, I think, what was very standard years ago was see however many healthcare providers or external stakeholders that we are telling you you need to see per month. Um, that has really transitioned because touch points don't necessarily tie back to um, that strategic decision making that a company actually needs, right? So, um, so kind of a flyby in the hallway, marking it down as an interaction, those days are gone. So I think what you really see is um, truly field medical becoming recognized as the scientific experts for their tied therapeutic area and activities are reflecting that. So you see a multitude of opportunities to partner for research as well as for education, internal and external education, right? So you will see MSLs at posters presenting data at different congresses or conferences. You will see them driving investigator-sponsored studies, um, moving them forward. You will see them driving publications forward in addition to sort of those stereotypical field visits, one-on-one -on -one visits. And then the educational side. So 
you'll see field medical driving um, advisory board participation to really garner critical um, business um, insights. You'll see them educating not only external stakeholders, office staff, um, their network, but also internally cross-functional partners. Um, presentations, whether it's for payers, for our market access colleagues, you know, Medicaid testimonials, a multitude of different things are really falling within field medicals wheelhouse. Um, and so, so I, I would definitely say, you know, it used to be that you would enter into medical affairs as sort of that MSL position. And then it was like one of two directions becoming a medical director or perhaps field leadership, becoming, you know, kind of a manager of MSLs. That's that's really kind of out the window. Um, and if people are really th thinking through those two lenses, I would challenge them um, to, like I said, think outside of the box where there's additional, where there's gaps or where there's opportunities, be the driver for those opportunities. Yeah, and again, I think that's a great point because COVID has also changed so many things with regards to how we work internally and how we can navigate our career. I mean, look at the amount of really amazingly talented, intelligent, uh, motivated people that have been based all over the country, but for one reason or another, can't be in a major city where there's a pharma company that's based, um, but they have a lot to offer. And now, just because they're based somewhere else, doesn't mean they're limited to only doing certain roles, right? They can cross into other things. So yeah. I think your point is really well taken. And right now, if anybody's thinking about making a jump into what would have normally been not conventional, now now might be that time, right? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And Scott, even to even to your point um, earlier when you were talking through, you know, you have the EMT background and it was like, well, I don't have that, you know, D degree or that terminal degree. I I would also challenge people in medical affairs, specifically in the field, to think outside of medical affairs, right? Like there, yeah. there's, um, you know, it's, it's um, what we're seeing much more of are these additional um, field-facing teams that are not your conventional field-facing teams, right? Like you're hearing like thought leader liaisons. Yep. They are yep. not tied to like a field sales team, but they're really driving marketing for a region. And um, there's, there's just a huge amount of opportunity. Yep. People tend to think a little more narrowly. Through, well, where do I move within medical affairs? Um, and I would actually challenge them to even, even think much broader than that. Yeah. And, you know, I know you had said that um, ALS was a passion of yours. Um, so, you know, when you think of ALS today, you think of it as an actionable targeted disease state, right? Because organizations are looking at these, um, you know, rare diseases and, and tougher to identify, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, targets and, and whatnot compared to a number of years ago where most companies wouldn't have gone near a target for ALS. Yep. What's, you know, what's the difference between say working at an organization where it's going, you know, where the MSL might be talking like asthma, right? Where you've got just hundreds, if not thousands of, of potential, you know, key opinion leaders out there to something like ALS where, you know, you may have a key opinion leader in, in, you know, one in in the major cities, or one in a in a in, a, in an entire region of the 
the country that, you know, is, is the person to get to. What, what's the difference there for somebody who's, you know, navigating their, their career? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, so your universe of external stakeholders, um, to some degree dictates what's in your repertoire of activities, right? So I think the smaller the universe really in general, you're, you're going to have probably a much broader, um, amount of activities that is going to be expected of you. Um, so, so when you're thinking more rare, rare diseases, smaller organizations, things like that, it's really critical to understand at a very, very deep level, the needs of the external stakeholder to ultimately continue to drive value there. Um, so it's, it's critical to partner cross-functionally and to, um, to make sure that, what you are bringing is something that's going to be valuable and impactful. Um, so it, where you maybe have um, in a much a much more prevalent disease state in a much larger universe of external stakeholders, um, not that it's not as strategic, but I think the way that you engage and the way you think through um, uh, that that kind of value proposition as an organization and as sort of an individual um, is is a little bit perhaps more strategic where you really have to rely because the expectations of what you're driving is a little bit broader. That's good insight. You know, yeah, for sure. I was just going to say uh, that that's all part of the evolution, right, of, of what we've seen over the last few years is, uh, you know, these smaller molecules, these really rare disease, these targeted things. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's got to be difficult as a, a manager or a head of, of, you know, a department trying to figure out how do you attract talent for these newer areas where there might not be a pool of people that have that experience. So yeah. Any, yep. any thoughts there? Yeah. So I think, um, and this is true with anything, I think um, what's on paper doesn't always mean that's what you need or that's what you're looking for, right? So I've seen amazing CVs or resumes. And then when it comes to presenting and kind of going through the actual interview process, um, there's been disconnect. Um, so I, I, um, I would say first and foremost, don't be so reliant on the actual piece of paper or sort of the, the CV or the resume that's in front of you. Um, there's really two key ingredients, I would say, to truly successful um, field medical colleagues, and that's scientific acumen to be able to kind of understand, um, assimilate, and then articulate that um, is a skill in of itself. Usually that resonates based on sort of schooling background, um, you know, academic um, trajectory where you think, okay, he or she got through perhaps a PhD or whatever whatever the trajectory was. Um, you assume a certain level of scientific acumen. The piece that doesn't sit on that piece of paper is the other critical ingredient, which is 
emotional intelligence, (laughs) Um, the ability to connect, which is absolutely key when you're looking to facilitate and foster those peer-to-peer interactions between, you know, a company, your therapeutic area, and your external stakeholder. So that's the piece as sort of a manager or a leader you really need in combination when you're thinking um, a kind of best in practice, best in class, uh, field medical specifically. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we often say um, when we're talking to medical teams, um, it doesn't say NIH in the top corner of, of our paycheck each week, right? It generally has the name of the company you work for. So yeah. we have to figure out how do you balance the medicine and science with the business objectives of the company, right? We, we want to remain 100% true to the science, 100% true to, to the medicine, and we, we totally want to be the experts in that. We want to be able to relay it accurately and transparently. But at the same time, um, we don't have the luxury to be able to do, you know, go off and do every experiment that we possibly could do to help yeah. fully understand a disease state, right? So it's it's balancing that that science and non-science attributes of the job. I think that's so, so critical. Yeah. You know, so many times what sounds and looks really sexy as the basic science does not mean it's going to resonate um, when you look through translational medicine, right? Um, or even for what is a current gap in that therapeutic area or that treatment landscape, right? Um, so, so yeah, it's definitely recognizing having um, uh, it in, to my earlier point, kind of like professional courtesy, but there's also a critical piece of just understanding each of your cross-functional colleagues' business objectives, what, how are they going to be measured for success? What, what are, what from an organizational perspective are their objectives when you're thinking field facing and, you know, that six, eight people all touching the same kind of external stakeholder to garner those insights and those touch points, just having that level of understanding um, goes a really, really far way, actually. Absolutely. And and you and I were in an organization together where we really spent a, a, a good amount of time trying to formally and informally, but also compliantly influence the dialogue to Scott's earlier yep. question about the medical commercial relationship. And, yep. and I think just that dialogue alone, especially for people who are new in, in in whether it be medical or commercial, new to the industry, having them really understand what their colleagues are responsible for and, and what the mission of their job is, that in and of itself, invaluable, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, it's in to your point, you know, your paychecks are basically all paid by the same organization, right? So to, to recognize your, to understand each other's business objectives is really just setting each other up for success and ultimately the organization as a whole. So, um, so I, I find that to me to be really impactful um, also. Well said. So I have one last last question for you, um, tying in the commercial medical you know side of things. So what's the best way, what's the advice you can give from your side of the table to somebody in commercial on how to approach, um, how, how's the best way to word it, to, to developing that relationship with their MSL? 
I know a lot of commercial folks are, are petrified to talk to their MSL <laughs> because they're afraid they're going to cross some line and, you know, the MSL is going to run to compliance and say, I don't want to get in trouble for, you know, this, you know, I, I, in my own experience, I've always said, if it's a question that you wouldn't feel comfortable putting in an email and everybody seeing it, it's probably not a question that you should be putting your MSL on the spot for, but that's kind of the way you and your MSL kind of have to, you know, figure out those boundaries. What's, what's a good way to start that relationship day one when, when, you know, these two individuals are in the same, uh, same organization? Picking up the phone and calling. <laughs> I would say trust that your field medical colleagues will, will not be putting you at risk. Um, and in sort of the best kind of collaboration, right, is one that's built on trust. So I, I always say to any of um, our field folks, like, you, you should be the one that is protecting your commercial colleague, but also not just yourself, right? So sure. if there is a question that's being asked, then it's, hey, you know what? Um, I understand like what you're trying to ask. I don't want to put either one of us at risk. So um, can't can't give details to that. Um, and in using that as sort of the basis of the relationship from the beginning is really, it's going to allow mutual understanding. It's going to build on trust. Um, and, and to my earlier point, you should both be um, looking to set each other up for success. And that can absolutely sure. be done compliantly. It should be done compliantly. Um, but communication is key. So I would just say just trust that um, your field medical folks are doing their due diligence to not put either either one at risk because um, it's, the, it's the company that's going to um, ultimately suffer in addition to the individuals. But um, there, there, should be, there should be a recipe of just um, trust, understanding, and communication. So... Awesome advice. Absolutely. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the 45 minutes we've been together just kind of flew by, um, yeah, but it, really but it did. always does. So, um, again, thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your insights. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will get a whole lot out of it. And, um, just like we always do, we'll, when we post this up, we'll put some information, um, about you and about your, your, um, involvement in the industry, um, on our webpage. So uh, we encourage people to, to have a listen and reach out. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, John. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, definitely, uh, hopefully, uh, I, I know for a fact people will get uh, a lot out of this conversation, and, and that's what we're here to do at the Biotech Project. So for everybody listening, make sure that um, you, again, like and share this episode, especially if you got something from it. And if you know somebody that can get something from it, make sure you share with them. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to The Biotech Project. Scott and John have 50 years of combined expertise with roles that have covered everything from frontline sales to senior vice president of medical affairs. Scott and John are industry veterans. 
equipping you with knowledge from guests in every role from CEO to sales, recruiters to hiring managers. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, check out the website at www.thebiotechproject.com. And for questions and comments, send an email to hosts at thebiotechproject.com. See you next time.